Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, hackers of all ages, welcome to the future of application security, a podcast dedicated to the innovative leaders looking to build out modern AppSec programs. I'm your guest host, Eric Sheridan, Chief Innovation Officer at Tromso. In this podcast, we meet with industry leaders to talk about their boots on the ground experience building out these modern AppSec programs so we can all learn from their experience. With that said, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Future of Application Security, where I'm going to chat with speakers at the Developers and Security Are Friends Day, a free full-day training event for developers and security professionals in the areas of application, product, and cloud security. Today, I have with me Jonathan Kuskos, founder of Chaotic Good Information Security. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. So for those of you who don't know, I used to actually work with this guy probably over, over 10 years ago, probably one of the best pen testers I think I've ever met. Thanks. So <laughs> humbled. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I have a list of canned questions here to ask you, but I would actually ask, want to ask, uh, if you, when you do pen testing, a lot of times you find some pretty wild stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if there's some wild story or something that comes to mind, wild example that you found during pen testing that uh, you might want to share with the audience. Yeah. So I always really enjoy finding the vulnerabilities that by themselves tend to be lower medium and then string together end up being something awesome because they tend to not be on any of the top 10 lists and everyone's always securing themselves against whatever the top 10 X or Y or Z may be. So the fun stuff is just breaking them with 11 through 30, whatever that may be. And uh, anytime you can do that, I feel like that's actually more impactful than like the very easy remote code execution from some backdoor being in place. But one notable one that comes to mind that makes me really happy is that there's an assessment I was doing once where we simply found directory indexing, which by itself is sometimes informational. It's just in a way to iterate through the contents on the web server. Yeah. But we've also found, and I, when I say we, uh, the company I was working for and myself, I found a .git folder on that Interesting. website. And so with a .git folder there and directory indexing, you can just do a recursive wget, download all the information there, and now you have a local git repository, git status, git checkout star. Wow. Suddenly the assessment is now a white box assessment, and where I thought I didn't have much functionality to test, there was actually plenty of more files there, all with nuanced names. And so since they weren't deep linked, you'd only find them through traditional brute forcing, which is not a production safe thing to do if we're delivering a time box assessment to a client. But since I had them in front of me, I could go straight to it. I could see the exact SQL queries. I could immediately see where SQL injection is. And those two things on their own would typically be vulnerabilities that most companies siloed would probably say, we'll fix that six months from now. That's wild. Yeah. So like if you have the whole .git repo, like basically you have access to all the source code. Everything. The entire commit history. So if somebody accidentally committed like a secret or a key, mm-hmm. like it was there, you yep. could pull it up. And old credentials were absolutely in that. <laughs> <laughs> Whether they were That's still used good. or not, I didn't go that far. We just reported the good. credentials. But yeah, everything within the context of secrets that shouldn't be hard-coded were there. Yeah. On top of things that you'd otherwise just never knew about from a black box perspective. Easy game over instantly and from something that would canonically be known as Sev Medium and Sev Low. Wow. So what what is the reception like when you report something like that? Like, hey, I just chained together these three things you generally think are low and turn into a critical. My approach on that has really changed as I've kind of grown and become a more mature security engineer. For instance, I remember when I was younger finding things like that, and this was a finding eight years ago for me. I remember being, when I was filing the report to the client, I was saying, this could simply be fixed by just doing, and it's a little belittling. And I've learned 
I've since learned that there's a more elegant way to have that conversation instead of immediately putting them down and saying like the simple thing that you did not find could so easily be remediated if you thought about blah. Just state the realities. Just state how to fix it. Most software engineers are quite intelligent. You know, they went to school to learn this craft and now they're in a profession actually doing it. They can figure it out. They don't need to be called anything belittling on the way out. I think that there's a proper way to have that conversation that a lot of us as younger security engineers really mess up. Yeah, you kind of don't want to insult the people who are writing the checks, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. And it doesn't help with the divide between security and developers. Like the main reason we're having this conference today is about bringing those things together. Well, younger security engineers, and I say younger because I used to be one of those, were a little too eager to say, this is Voln, that's Voln, that's Voln, and I'm going to shut off the server. And well, if that's shut off, there's no product. If there's no product, there's no company. If there's no company, there's no security team. And so we kind of need to get back to diplomacy and figuring out how to communicate more effectively in a way that doesn't create enemies for us later on. And people are surprised when they join a new company on the security team and are wondering why the devs don't want to talk to them. Well, we kind of created friction. I think a lot of us unknowingly created friction because we weren't thinking ahead. And this is the world that I see us in today. That's interesting. So actually speaking of the conference and speaking of the talk, there's like this concept of a dilemma that you introduced, something about like good, fast, and cheap. What are, yes. you, what are you referring to there? Yeah, so that's entirely authentic and unique. No one's ever thought about that but me. Totally novel thought. The basic premise is that you can't have all three of them. Okay. Um, you know, just kind of living in reality. Things that are cheap tend to not be good, tend to not be fast. Things that are good tend to be expensive. Things that are fast tend to not be thorough. And so there's this trifecta of, I can't have all of them, but maybe I can have combinations of them. And what I personally think is that there are methodologies and decisions that you can make that will let you approach center, not quite get there. You know, that that's not practical. Yeah. There's no one size solution out there that is both good and fast and cheap. And if there was, salespeople wouldn't be needing to sell it. Right. <laughs> We'd all be asking for it. But I do think that there's compromises that we can make in some areas of running an internal SOC or providing security assurance guidance to teams that lets us approach center. And it's just, Kind of like tidbits of advice that I've picked up over my last decade of experience running enterprise security teams. Okay. So do you find there's like a propensity to navigate more towards cheap, more towards faster? Like, what are you saying? I think that obviously everyone is always incentivized to go as cheaply as possible. Yeah. And there's a lot of politics and diplomacy there that probably impact that more than anything else. I actually see that more depending on who the CISO is reporting to, funnily enough. The CISO who's a peer to a CTO will have a completely different set of things that they're behooved to act on versus a CISO who reports to, say, like the chief risk officer or a CISO that reports to legal. And you're going to have different levers to play with based on what that is. But let's say that you have a particular security leadership that is well-informed, very capable, has the right motivations, and is able to secure a good enough budget, whatever that may be for your size of organization. You still want to stretch that and maximize it as much as possible, which is going to mean going as lean as you can on the resource expenditure in the areas that you can to pay your way out of problems that you're not going to have the resources for. And again, this is going to be very organization dependent. Maybe you have a particular technology friction that you don't have the right capabilities to assess yourself. You can buy your way out of that problem. Let's say that you don't have the right compensating controls for your security team. A great example is a web application firewall. Um, that's typically the one piece of infrastructure that a security team may control. So although we can't often push fixes to code bases for different engineering teams, and we don't want the liability of that anyways, should something go wrong, we can often have control of the WAF. 
which lets us tune out things that we're finding in modern incident response, you play the balance of not blocking any actual customers there, but that's a situation that you can buy yourself out of. Now, in order to buy yourself out of all these problems, you have to reduce in the other areas, like maybe vulnerability management is one of them that I've seen before. People, instead of buying a vulnerability management platform, they might try to create their own thing in Jira. And next thing you know, they're Jira admins on the side and they never wanted to do that anyways. And it doesn't scale in the right ways that they need it to because they're not experts in that. So then they're asking themselves, okay, do I go hire a Jira admin for this particular thing? Or do I go buy a proper vulnerability management product? Just different levers and resources, I think, that you can toggle in building out what's best to your capabilities. This can be very context dependent, very team dependent, very organization dependent. Kind of build your own adventure depending on which of those things are a good resource for you and which aren't. Well, I kind of like that because like, uh, you know, doing the pen testing the work you do at Chaotic Good, like you're finding a ton of vulnerabilities. You talked about vulnerability management software and you talked about context. Like that's the perfect lead in for like the next thing I want to talk to you about, (laughs) (laughs) which is like prioritization. Because, you know, there's some customers I work with that have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of vulnerabilities in the backlog. And this very basic question I ask is like, given two criticals, which ones do you work on and why? And the answer to that question is always like, well, you need more information. So what does that mean to you? What is the answer to, what is the more information that you see that's helping? I feel that as much as it depends is really a cop-out answer, that's also the living in reality answer for anyone who's actually tried to solve that problem before. So let's say you have, like you said, millions of vulnerabilities of various severity of various likelihoods to happen. What do you focus on first? And I feel like the real answer is anyone that will listen depending on the size of the company. So like, let's say that it's like a behemoth of a company and you have handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of engineering teams. Each of those engineering teams are going to have their own ways of doing things, their own pipelines that they follow, their own processes that they follow, their own buy-in and willingness to let security intersect and inject into their day. So that really comes down to, do each of those teams have security controls as part of their requirements for building? If not, you're kind of screaming into the void and saying, you have to fix this. And at the same time, you can always do a fun smoke test with this. Like, let's say that you have software composition analysis tools plugged in and you start the dial at CVSS 3.1, Yeah. Start blocking builds, things that have these known things that are bad. Maybe there's a little context independent, you know, vulnerable, something being vulnerable is not the same thing as it being exploitable, depending on where it lives in the infrastructure. But let's say you start blocking things at 9.9. And you start lowering that 9.8, 9.7, 9.6. You're doing a little screen test. You're waiting until someone says, stop doing this. You're messing up my day so badly that we can't get done what we need to get done. And I think there you're going to find what your actual overlap of security really is. And for some teams, maybe that's six. For some teams, maybe that's 9.7. And their day is so catastrophically ruined that you're not going to get that buy-in. I really think it's team dependent, unfortunately. Yeah. So where I would start personally, if I was in that situation tomorrow, we'd sort them by the assets that are most likely to be reached by external parties. So your external things first, pretty common sense, but then also sort those probably by which assets actually generate revenue for the company. Because at the same time, you have a company with some mission they're trying to accomplish. You have a core engineering team who's building a product to allow them to execute on that mission. And in the real world, security is often an afterthought. We're the people coming in saying, okay, this is bad in those ways. If we're good at our job, we can quantify that. But if that's not part of the requirements of those engineers building the thing, then we're already not talking the same language. We're already having conflicting win conditions. The thing that makes me accomplish my goals might be a friction point for them. 
And that's a little bit more of a diplomatic and political conversation than anything else. Do you have a leader in the engineering department who also agrees with my goals? And if not, why is there a disconnect? That is not a technology problem. That's a a diplomacy problem. That's agreeing on the same principle. That's being on the same page. Well, so like, why would there be a disconnect? Like, what are some things that you've seen? Well, some groups tend to think that security is a cost center. Some groups tend to think it's an insurance center. Another less popular approach, but I think is really valuable, is that you might have a company that's valued at X. And let's say that we were able to take all the security liabilities that we were aware of, because risks are liabilities, and maybe we can quantify how much that costs. One argument could be that the company is really worth X minus security liabilities, whatever that's about to be, which means that the company is actually overvalued. And I find that when you're talking in terms of dollars, that actually crosses barriers a whole lot more than this thing is high on a stoplight of likelihood to be discovered and high on likely of impact if exploited. You know, that kind of like people eyes glaze over as soon as you tell them like the stoplight, red, yellow, green, <laughs> sure. how bad something is. Yeah. But if you say that this particular exploit or downtime should an exploit occur cost this amount of money and that amount of money can be quantified in person hours being spent, external forensics being brought in, PR reactions, which are not cheap, assuming you're the subject of a breach. Yeah. I try to talk about it in terms of dollars to get the point across that this is a worthy investment. Now, you have to be very right when you do that, and sometimes that's a subjective thing. I tend to look towards things like bug bounty valuations to quantify the dollar value of a particular vulnerability. And there's high ends and low ends of that, a little bit of a wild west of that market. But the whole point is to cross the barrier and communicate in terms that the other party receives. We're really good about talking to security to security people. Somewhat practice in talking to engineers, but crossing over to like other business development areas or folks who actually control the power of the purse is a little bit more of an intangible exercise. I like that. So one of the things I do is I'll often work with, you know, folks in sales teams for some reason, for some need. And there was one sales leader who talked to me about like value selling. And he was pretty blunt. He said, look, like when you're selling and doing value selling, you're either trying to communicate how you're making money or how you're saving money. Because everybody can relate to making money or saving money, no matter who you're talking to. And especially when you're actually yeah, talking to executives. So like the ability to actually quantify and dollars saved is something anybody can relate to. So it's pretty cool that you're, you're seeing that and, and moving in that direction. I feel like it's one of the easier ways to communicate, at least in these fields. Most people, like they can resolve that one. It makes sense. Yeah. Now you have to be really right when you make a claim like that. And obviously best intentions really go a long way, but I think that the more accurate you can be on that, the more that you can get the point across that investing in security is a worthy investment. It raises the value of your business. It allows you to have a more mature product. Your customers are going to give you your trust whether you're worthy of it or not. So let's do the best that we can along the way. I like that. Um, Earlier, you actually talked a little bit about vulnerability and exploitability being like two different things. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So let's say that we are assessing everything in our environment for how vulnerable they are. Just a measure of can we do something bad with it and can we quantify how bad that is? Insert favorite payload or vulnerability situation here. Let's use Log4j as an example. It's fresh in most people's minds and even people who are not in security tend to have heard that by now. Some of that is going to be on externally accessible infrastructure. Some of that's going to be on internal things. Maybe some of that is internal and deeply nested within some level of privileged access. They're all vulnerable. A certain subsection of those is likely to be impacted first if exploited and a certain subsection is not. So given a world of finite resources, if you have to prioritize, that's where you prioritize. You still don't want the, oh, but it's internal argument to stop any progress from being made because once you're in an organization, like let's say you've compromised one host to get in, yeah. the first thing I do is try to maintain that access. 
And that means scanning for anything adjacent, pivoting to anything else that I can, including those internal assets. And that would be my way of getting back into the organization should my initial method of compromise be figured out. At the same time, different organizations, think banks, for instance, are going to have a very particular stance towards insider threat. Yeah. And anyone who has any sort of policy or thoughts towards what their insider threat program should be really should care about anything that's getting deprioritized because, but it's internal. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned I worked with a few financial institutions uh, back in the day and like the insider was probably one of the most significant things they were concerned about because, you know, even though theoretically the the attacks are less, the likelihood of success is like far more greater than an external threat. It's always counterintuitive to hear, oh, we're going to deprioritize that, but it's internal or because it's internal. It's like, but you also have an insider threat program and you seem to care a lot about data exfiltration. Why would we care less about the but it's internal? Like like this something is not connecting there. Yeah. And, and that's a method or that's a necessity to educate the customer, to educate the end recipient on why this matters. For some reason, we think something different. And it's just a matter of communicating that across, I think. Okay. And speaking of, uh, you know, exploitable, whether something's vulnerable versus exploitable, and talking a little about that, you talked about, I think you gave like public accessibility is like an example or something. Things that are externally accessible, you know, the thing most likely to be hit from someone who's not at your company and anyone on the internet can scan this anyways. Yeah. So, so it's like, uh, I think you you and I were talking a little about this earlier, like attack surface mapping, like are there like tools or or something that you maybe recommend people look into to try to understand what that is for them? Yeah, I don't want to endorse any specific vendor, but there is a whole market for external attack surface management that has kind of popped up in the last couple of years. And the whole premise there is just about understanding what your known knowns may be. Like, let's say that you have a collection of websites that you know that external customers can get to. And maybe those websites have some microservices that connect to internal APIs, but everything that's external, anyone on the web can get to anyways. And so whether you find an issue there or someone else does, the whole point is that anyone on the internet can literally touch this device. And so you want to know explicitly what are all of those assets, what services are open on it, is anything misconfigured? And just having that inventory, I think, is a big step towards knowing everything that you're responsible for, because everyone's going to have different answers for that. In my experience, the network team will tell me one thing about what they own. The GRC team will tell me another thing about what they own. Sales and marketing will tell me assets that the engineering team had no idea was something that we owned. (laughs) And all of that is something that a security team is responsible for. And so one thing that you can do instead of waiting on everyone to just give you this information is just scan it yourself. Or and so some companies will purchase this information from like Shodan, for instance. And so here's all the cash stuff that's out there that has been assessed by something at some point to know that it's alive. The security team should note each of those points of infrastructure because they're responsible for keeping them up to date and responsible for knowing if they're exploitable or not. Yeah, it's probably why shadow IT is kind of a scary thing, right? It's a scary thing, but it's also a necessary double check because at the same time, let's say everyone is saying, here's what we have. What if they're wrong? What if they're outdated? Like, do you really hinge everything on the network team gave me an asset inventory list that's 12 months outdated? And then who are they getting information from? Is it curated from like a programmatical or autonomous source or is it best effort from all of the individual contributors? Yeah. Or depending like, on how big the company may be. Yeah. Or like a questionnaire you sent out last year. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and everyone's 1000% honest and accurate on questionnaire. <laughs> right. They're going to hit every, every endpoint possible, yeah. including the ephemeral one. <laughs> yep. That's funny. So I actually had in my notes here about this 15 minute rule concept. I'm not, I'm, what were you referring to? Because I'm not familiar with this idea. So it's more of a practice within penetration testing that I really try to adhere to. When you're performing an assessment on any particular target, 
And it's a time boxed assessment. You really have to cover as much as possible. And if it's, let's say it's a black box assessment and maybe we, to help us out, we've been given user accounts, but we don't know anything about the underlying technologies powering the application as a pen tester. We don't know any of that. We don't know anything about how queries are written in the back end. We don't know any of the server side infrastructure, purely black box. The 15 minute rule is just good advice that you could give to anyone performing a security assessment. Let's say you're looking at login functionality. And you're kind of going through all the checkboxes of, okay, can I, does anything happen if I put in SQL injection payloads in the username or the password or a valid username and the password or none of the above? What does a null response look like? And you start going through all these iterations of finding something. Let's say that you get a response back that looks interesting. Like you put in a single tick and you don't get an error back, but maybe the page comes back 3000 milliseconds later, whereas typically on average, it's coming back in 150 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds. Something's there, but you just don't quite know it. And you can very easily waste that entire Monday and Tuesday chasing that rabbit hole because something might be there. And so the 15 minute rule is just a gentle reminder. If you've not made active progress on anything that you're hacking on in 15 minutes, make a note of it, move on. Because I can't tell you how many times I've done that and wasted two days. And then the next page was remote code execution. And that remote code execution lets me read the source code of the previous page, which tells me exactly what the query is. And if you're doing a time boxed assessment, it is good enough to say, hey, this is behaving weird. Message your point of contact for who you're performing the assessment for. You don't have to physically waste 48 hours to find it yourself to win some sort of like internal trophy badge. The whole point is to identify problems and make them known. And that's more of a partnership than anything else. Like the same thing happens when you're finding an exploit. And let's say the detection team identifies you. And they're like, great, we got you. We see you in the network logs. Like we found you. Cool. Play it out. Block me. Like, do the whole process of what incident response will be. And I've said that as a rebuttal occasionally, and they'll just be like, uh, okay, hold on, we'll get back to you. You don't have a playbook for that, do you? Okay, I'm going to keep going with the assessment, block me when you're able to. And what ends up happening is maybe a day later after they've gotten the right approvals or someone has decided they're going to take it upon themselves, no matter the repercussions, they block my IP. I get a new one and I'm back. Run the playbook. So what does the whole thing look like? So the 15-minute rule is really for me as an assessor to not waste time on something that isn't exploitable, allow me to get to as much functionality as possible within the application. There tend to be some treasure maps and gold mines when you get to custom business logic. And I want to make sure that I'm hitting all of those. But at the same time, if someone detects you, have them play the whole process out. It's like, it's not game over because you found me. I don't stop the assessment because you found me. Bad guys are going to do this anyways. And yeah, you tell them that it's out of scope for them to continue assessing you when you identified them. That's funny. Yeah. So like, um, you know, a lot of folks are focused on like getting alerting data and you hear about alert fatigue and stuff like that. And it's one thing to be able to say, look, hey, we see you, right? But there's another thing to actually do something about it. And so I'll often say in different contexts, like, you know, what's the point of collecting the data if you can't do anything with it in a timely fashion? And so it's very interesting that you're uh, kind of very delicately saying, hey, look, okay, you did spot me. So do something, yeah. right? Test your response to that. And that can be a collaborative exercise. I mean, that's a win. If they identify you, great. You know that that team is able to identify someone knowingly doing something bad. Yeah. Maybe they were tipped off that like, hey, an assessment is happening and find some evidence for it. But that should be happening all the time anyways. And if it does, you can turn it into a partnership. Like the whole purple team mantra has kind of really been born of this. Red teamers and blue teamers working together. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, and being able to identify like kind of when enough is enough when you're doing pen testing mm -hmm. is, is is something that's pretty hard. It's like this this concept of like setting a 15 minutes. So like, how do you measure if you're making progress? Like, if you're trying to hack a particular page or a particular piece of functionality, like like yeah. how do you know you should keep going or should you should stop? Like, well, so 
in reality, in a time box assessment, you know, after 40 or 80 or 120 billable hours, like the assessment is done. Yeah. Like we have a finite amount of time to do this sort of thing. So I think that you need a nuanced approach of combining automated tools with manual inspection, use automation in the areas where going wide makes sense. Don't over rely on them in the areas where going deep in context makes sense. It's just difficult for automation to do well in those areas. It's certainly necessary, but you're going to need a tightly tuned and like highly configured piece of software to really iterate on that, which you often end up tuning as you're going deep anyways, looking at HTTPS traffic and understanding really how the application works, especially if it's your first time seeing it. The scary answer is that you do the best that you can. I've seen a number of times where you put two assessors on the same thing and they'll have mostly the same results, but it's a Venn diagram. One is going to find something that another person is not going to find. And I think the hard stone to swallow there is that a lot of finding vulnerabilities really is luck-based. You have to be in the right place at the right time with enough contextual knowledge about that technology and how vulnerabilities work yeah. to determine something exploitable. And if you're good at your job, you can determine how bad it is. But what if you just never land on that functionality? What if it's something that is like deep linked behind a complicated set of, of authentication and configuration things. You need a certain account that has access to this thing that has to be configured in a certain way. And then this one page opens up that would not resolve if you ever directly browsed to it before. Automation tends to not get to those areas. Humans get to it occasionally. And this is why I say partner with your sales and marketing teams on determining what assets that you own. Because the engineering team might hand you like, here's a list of APIs or a list of endpoints, but maybe you have to be authenticated to a certain account, given a certain privilege to be able to hit the thing. And I guarantee you, marketing knows the areas of the application that people are not clicking on. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> actually, have you ever been on a pen test where you found zero findings? Yeah, occasionally. So what is, and I don't think that's a bad thing, honestly. I actually, I think there's a good sort of angle and justification when it happens. Like, what's, what's your kind of perspective on that? It's very irritating because you definitely <laughs> want, to, want to just will things to break and you want to have a good report. Yeah. And, and it's easier to say, I found these 20 things and I spent more time writing the report than actually assessing the thing that I found nothing at all. Because then you have to really systematically look at your approach. Did you try everything? Were there enough things to test? Some sites just don't have a lot of landscape. They don't have a lot of surface area to assess. Think like any static web page that's out there. Or, yeah, like, like a lot of entertainment companies do this. Like, let's say that they're advertising a new movie coming out. It's a static page with the graphic. And someone will say, go scan that. Like, it literally looks like a PDF export. There's nothing to scan. There's no functionality to interact with. Sometimes you have applications that are just not that complex. And that's good from a design front. Anything that's not overly bloated, it's less to be responsible for. It's quicker to assess everything. I'd much rather do a code review on a thousand lines than a hundred thousand lines. You can be more thorough on those. It does happen. I think that everyone gets a little bit of a panic attack when they see that there's no findings. Clearly, there must be something. Yeah. But sometimes teams actually do do a good job. I think that you need to make sure that the proper due diligence has been done when you say no vulnerabilities were found, because that's no different than someone not looking closely. Yeah. And so why were no vulnerabilities found? Is it because a poorly configured scanner was run? Is it because you were half asleep when you were doing the assessment? Was it a week where you expected to spend 40 hours assessing the application, but then Monday was a holiday, Tuesday had an all hands, Wednesday had a team outing, and then I have two interns that need mentoring on Thursday. So the 40 hour week really turns into 15. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, as you were telling me that I, I had this experience where I actually had to pen test a static web page for a week, you know, and so I, I don't know how to justify, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to justify my time, but like, you know, there are some good reasons, like, um, you know, if you come up with, you know, zero findings, like, 
you know, talk about your test plan because then you get into like what was tested, what was the methodology between us tested. Like you're verifying the correct design implementation of security controls and the system. And so if you're documenting your test and you have a clear test plan, you go in to come back, like it justifies on a positive perspective in many cases what the development team's doing or the product team is doing. Sure. And sometimes there not being a lot of functionality can improperly get mapped with not enough effort being performed on it. Like let's say that the client that you're serving Let's say that they're just really not familiar with the inner workings of what security assessments really are. And so they're just going to trust your results. But they have some heuristics they can look at. They can look at number of requests being made to the server. And so maybe even though there's a lot of functionality, they're looking at number of requests made from the IP space that the pen tester has given them. And they're like, you only sent 2,000 requests to this thing. Last year, an automated scan sent a million over two days. Interesting. And it's like, they might have been like, and you see a lot of improper assessments on scanners doing this too, just flooding with contextless payloads. Yeah. You can see this a lot in Burp. Burp has a particular section in Intruder where we'll do uh, cross-site scripting payloads. And personally, it really irritates me to see that in server logs because someone will run those payloads. And it's just different nuances of like, you know, semicolon, alert one, in the statement, yeah. comments out, or just some script tags, completely contextless about where it's landing. And then they'll say, checkbox, I tested for cross-site scripting. And it's like, that's not how it works. You're looking for input validation problems first. And then what is the character space that you can work with? And can you execute JavaScript on top of that? You can solve that in 10 requests a lot of the time instead of sending 200,000 syntactically correct individual XSS payloads looking for an alert one to fire. Yeah. And people will do that against fields that don't have any reflection in the first page. <laughs> right. And so you might be trying to tell someone who's looking at number of requests sent to the server from an automated scanner that you did do due diligence on it and they're not going to believe you. And so what do you do? All right, run the scanner. <laughs> I, I don't want to bill for 20 hours for that, yeah. but it's an interesting nuance in communicating the level of effort and what has been done. And like you said, maybe going through the flow of everything that you tried and why it didn't work is worthy in those situations where you have so few findings that it almost looks like an invaluable assessment. Really, it is quite valuable. It's an attestation that things might be pretty hardened until the next things fall out of patches. Right, right. Yeah, at the end of the day, value is relative, right? Everybody has different perspectives. So I think it was a good discussion. I want to end with, you know, how can people get in touch with you and Chaotic Good? Yeah, chaoticgoodinfosec.com is the site. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Jonathan Kuskos. I tend to go by my last name, Kuskos. And this is a boutique professional services company. We've kind of built our reputation off of finding vulnerabilities that other people miss. I've been a career pen tester for the last 12 years, very, very in the weeds with what other assessors miss. And honestly, this is doing what I love. Not any bit of it is work. Uh, this really is living the dream. That's cool. Well, folks, I'll wrap it up with Cusco's. If you want to find the things that other people miss, give this guy a call. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.